What's up, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Legendary Life Podcast. I'm health and fitness expert, Ted Rice, and this is the show that's all about taking your health, your body, and your life to that next level. And we're coming to you with part two of Dr. John Berardi's interview. If you haven't listened to the first one that aired on Monday, how health and fitness won't fix your broken life, make sure you go and listen to that one because we go deep into things that I feel that aren't being talked about. We focus so much on macros, on calories, on healthy foods, on superfoods, on which exercises get the best results, on what supplements to take. But we don't talk about like, hey, why am I really doing this stuff? And am I doing health and fitness? Is health and fitness a way, is it a form of escapism? for me to get away from the problems that I'm just not facing up to in life. And while that isn't the thing that we want to hear about, it's such an important part if we're truly looking to become the best version of ourselves. Now, that's in episode one. In episode two, in today's episode, John and I go into the science of nutrigenomics. In other words, there are these kits that you can buy that tell you, hey, these are your genes. These are what genes you have. Here's how you should eat because of your genetic test, because of the results of your genetic test. And they run you a couple hundred bucks on upwards to, I guess, a thousand bucks per person. And John and I dive into like, what does this stuff really tell you? Also, him and his team at precisionnutrition.com they put together this incredible ebook and it's free and you'll be able to download it we'll put the link on the show notes for this episode it's an incredible ebook and if you are fascinated by the science of genes and how it affects what we should eat and what we really can learn from taking a genetic test and whether or not you should spend your money on it. You're going to learn that in this episode. And if you'd like a deeper dive, you want to go into that free ebook, which will again be on the show notes for this podcast episode. Just go to legendarylifepodcast.com and it'll be right there for you. I also want to say that sharing is caring and the biggest compliment you can pay to me and all the hard work that I do to bring you these amazing guests and to put out content every week is to share this episode, share it on Facebook, on Twitter, wherever you hang out online would really appreciate it. Perhaps email it to some friends who could benefit from this information Lastly, if this is your first time listening to the show, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button in iTunes or Google Play, wherever you listen to this podcast so that you make sure you don't miss an episode. I've got some amazing content coming out, some amazing guest interviews as well as some material that I've been putting together. You don't want to miss it. Click that subscribe button to make sure you get it as soon as it's published. All right, I'm done with that. Let's get into the interview about nutrigenomics with Dr. John Berardi. John Berardi, thanks for coming back on the show, man. Ted, thanks for having me back. I had such a good time last time we chatted. um, And I hope people who listened really got a lot out of it. And, you know, I hope we can go even deeper today. Absolutely. I can't wait. I've got 
Uh, I know you just came out with that genetics ebook. Did you get a chance to go through the whole book yet, Ted, or no? I haven't because it's 390 pages <laughs> long. And uh, it's not the type of thing where it's like you, you go through the first part and you and it's all about the codons and all this stuff that I learned in when I took molecular biology. And so it's like, oh man, this is like bringing flashbacks up about my, cl- my class, you know? But uh, I yeah. got, I guess, halfway through it right now. But incredible cool. book. Yeah, for everyone listening, you know, we, there's just so much talk about genetics, in particular genetic testing nowadays. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I'm on Facebook and I get an ad for a new genetic testing service that's going to tell me exactly how to eat for my genes or whatever. And so, you know, after having enough of this, you know, the team and I got together and we're like, hey, can we actually do like a really exhaustive and free treatment of this subject, you know, relying heavily on the research and, and, and relying on our experience as coaches to help make sense of this for people, you know, and, and um, we started off and we thought this would be like a cool little small free, very detailed treatment, uh, uh, or not very detailed treatment, but just getting to very specific things people would be curious about. And then we realized, wow, there's so much stuff that people won't even know how to interpret or understand around the genetic testing unless they understand what genes are and how they work. So we went into a really deep and I think fun dive on that. And then, you know, one of the most fun parts for me was like doing this research we did, right? Because one of the things few people realize is that when you spit in a little tube, send it away to get your gene, your genome profiled, right. you're just assuming that their technology works. Right, right. right? Yep. That's, you know, and, and then the assumption is that knowing who you are through that technology, which you just assumed worked, will tell you something meaningful about yourself. And so with our thing, we're like, hey, let's actually show people that the technology might not even be telling you who you are. So we actually sent, you know, for me personally, for example, I actually spit in like five different tubes and send them to the same lab under five different names. Oh, wow. To see if all five came back the same. And then we sent my samples and other people's. We had about 40 different people participate in these various experiments to different labs that use the same tools and technology to see if the different labs, you know, running the, the biology there are doing enough standardization that between labs, the results come back the same, you know? So are they even getting a sense for who I am when I send my spit in? Or is that so variable that there's no way of even knowing if that could be helpful? And then we wanted to get into things like, is my genetics predictive of the things that they're supposed to tell me? Because some of the claims right now are like, work out this way if you have this genome. Yep. Don't eat carbs if you have this genome, right? So we're like, well, what about simple things? Like, you know, there's one gene that's supposed to code for your um, preference for cilantro, right? So some people have a particular polymorphism on a particular part of their genome that's supposed to tell your taste buds to think cilantro is just fine. And then if you have a different, just one base pair difference, it's supposed to tell you, whoa, cilantro tastes really bad. Right. So we're like, hey, what if we took 40 people, ask them if they like cilantro and then compare that to their gene output and see if it actually is predictive. Right. So we did all kinds of fun experiments like this, looking at heredity, metabolism, body weight, food preference, food intolerances. And, uh, you know, when you get through the book, I think you'll see, 
it's kind of fun because some of our test subjects become like little heroes of the story, right? So you're following them chapter after chapter to see if they're going to die from cancer, <laughs> if they're going to uh, like cow's milk or whatever. So it's a, it, it was awesome. It was a fun project to do. And maybe we did get a little carried away with the, the 400 pages. But the nice part is it's free. Uh, everyone who's interested can go check it out free online and, and read it online. You don't have to download it or print it or anything. You can just read it as a you know, mobile and web-friendly uh, book online. As, you can read it like a series of, of articles or chapters. So anyway, thanks for bringing it up. I mean, we published it recently. It's been really popular, and I think it's the most comprehensive thing anyone's ever done on genetic testing and health, fitness, and nutrition. So we're super pumped about it. And, and if no one else likes it, at least we had fun making it. <laughs> I think it's incredible. And uh, you, it, the parts that I've gone through already, it's like, yeah, this makes sense. Where you even talk about how there were some studies done where the scientists made some claims and then it was later determined that those claims were all false. And then they had to go back to the drawing board. And you talk about the standards that uh, the government's trying to employ to kind of make sure this stuff is, you know, to keep it on the up and up with the science. What can you tell us about that? Yeah. I mean, we're just at a fascinating juncture right now in medicine, to be honest, right? Like, um, just just read this book by a friend of mine, James Maskell, who's writing about the future of medicine, basically. And um, and the idea is medicine's at this critical juncture. Historically, medicine's been excellent at sort of critical care, right? And, and disease management. Um, so if you're ill with an acute condition uh, and you go see a physician, they're great at diagnostics. And even treating the problem uh, to prolong your life or in some cases make it go away. That's great because, you know, in this century and the last, those were the things that people needed help with. What medicine hasn't evolved into yet is, is a preventative type thing, you know, for chronic conditions. Now, chronic conditions are becoming our biggest threats. And so medicine's at this really interesting juncture right now. Where it is, you know, aside from Obamacare and all the things that are politically charged, inside medicine itself, people are trying to figure out, is like medicine one thing where we do critical care and we do chronic disease? Or is medicine going to become two things totally different under two different umbrellas? One is for dealing with chronic conditions and one is for dealing with acute life-threatening things. And so... In our lifetime, Ted, is, which is really interesting to me, this battle is going to be waged and maybe solved. And that's really interesting. And so for me, genetics fits into this because by definition, it's really not an acute thing. You know what I mean? This is right. chronic predictive stuff, right? So, you know, you can take a look in, into your, your gene programming and say, oh, now there are probabilities that things will happen later in your life, sometime in your future. So obviously the government's getting involved because they don't want companies to just crop up outside of regulation and just start telling people things that are wrong or damaging. But if the government gets too involved, we know what happens there. They probably stifle innovation. Right. So this, this other situation is happening where people are trying to figure out how do we navigate this. 
And so for us, it's just such, it's such an interesting thing for, for biology and biochemistry nerds. This is so cool. You know, just the idea that we can measure this for the first time in human history cheaply uh, and know things about ourselves is interesting. The, I guess, flip side of the coin there is that it's not helpful enough yet. Mm. You know, like there are some things that are super fascinating to learn, but very little of it is like you should absolutely do this. And then this outcome will happen positive for you. And if you don't do this, you'll have a negative outcome. You know, genetics doesn't quite work that way. And I think that's what's frustrating. And that's why you have like point counterpoint articles all over the media. You know, some people are talking about how this is the future of medicine. And then other people are saying there's no good evidence to suggest you can tell someone what to eat from their genes. Yeah, no, I just, it's, uh, I, I took a biotechnology class when I first went to university and it was so funny. This is like when I was 19, right? So 21 years ago and the guy in there, he was like, oh, this is, I wanted to study neuroscience. That was my thing. I, I just found mm-hmm. it fascinating. But he was like, oh, it's all about genetics. It's, uh, you know, don't even, nobody's going <laughs> to even be talking about neuroscience and it's all going to be about genes. And just to see like 21 years later, it's like still we we know there's the genome, which is our our genes, the actual I guess hardware or however you want to refer to them. And then yeah, you there's can call it like the blueprint, the blueprint, right? And then there's the phenotype, which is the expression of those genes, which is largely affected by our behaviors and you know our and even up to like what our moms did when we were in the womb or what our grandfather, or like the epigenetics thing is, is so interesting. Yeah. You know, I mean, like everything else, you know, the casual person interested in health and fitness is going to be bombarded by this genetics thing for years and years and years to come. Right. And the people who 19 years ago were talking about genetics as sort of like the vanguard are the types of people who are now talking about epigenetics, right? right? <laughs> so you just have to figure it like, you know, and this isn't like an elite versus non-elite thing. This is just like expertise and interest. Uh, and there's a continuum, right? If you're listening to this and you're just, you're, you're really kind of passionate about eating well and exercising, but not about molecular biology, that's great. <laughs> it's totally fine, <laughs> you know? And probably at your level of sort of exploration of these things, you're going to be digging into genes. That's what you're going to be reading about. Kind of like right now, so many people are talking about the microbiome, right? right? And the friendly bacteria in your gut, right? People have known about the microbiome and been writing about it for decades and decades and decades, but finally it's coming into public consciousness, right? Same thing's happening here. This genetics thing people have been talking about for so long and it's finally getting into public consciousness. And now the people who are generally on the vanguard of, of the new things are actually looking at epigenetics and trying to come up with tests that can actually measure the expression of certain genes. So for those listening, really, the genes are the blueprint, right? It's like, it's like the code on a piece of paper. It says, you, okay, we have the instructions for making these kinds of proteins, okay? But the body doesn't necessarily make those proteins. And it doesn't always know how much to make of them, right? So it's like you've got instructions and you've got like trillions of sets of blueprints in your body 
And your body's not going to be making all those blueprints at once. It's like trying to build a trillion buildings at the same time in a city. You can't. So what's going to happen is your lifestyle, like you said, the your mom's lifestyle when she was pregnant with you, maybe even your grandmom's lifestyle when she was pregnant with your mom, may trickle down into signals that tell which blueprints should be made. Okay. So, you know, for example, you know, I, I have a, when you look at my genes, there's a whole bunch of different things I've learned about myself, but one is I have a higher than normal risk for colon cancer. Okay. Mm. So, you know, now I know that that's not a death sentence for colon cancer, right? right? Because these are just probabilities. I have the blueprints, but there's nothing to say that my body will make the colon cancer, you know? And so what you look at then is lifestyle, right? And this is how genetics would be applied most appropriately. If we know those are good data, if we know the, the, the genetic pair in me has a blueprint for making more colon cancer than in someone else, then I would, I would do things that may lower my risk so that those blueprints never get built. You know, now some of those things we probably know about eating processed meats, for example, and a whole host of other things probably help. There's certain supplements that may help with that too. There's a whole host of things we don't know about yet though, either, right? right. Because it's not even cheap enough to do this testing in uh, mass, uh, let alone to know what to do with it. So that's kind of where we are. And that's why this whole genetics thing is so, it's being foisted in the public eye because it is so exciting to think of the possibilities and it's not there yet. <laughs> you know, and that's that's just blueprints. Now we have epigenetics, right? And I there's done a, a bunch of research studies with with some friends, scientists uh, historically, where there are these uh, basically machines where you put in a biological sample, and it will show you a readout of thousands or millions of genes that have been turned on or off by a particular intervention. Yeah. And it might even tell you how much it's been turned on or off, right? So, I don't know. Let's say um, you come into the lab and I make you do like a hard interval sprint session on an exercise bike, right? And then I take a little chunk of your thigh muscle and I run it through this analysis. And it'll tell me which genes were turned on and which genes were turned off and which were unaffected, right? And it's like, it's millions. Right. Right. And so think about how complicated that is to then know what that means. Right. And it, it's 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 why it's so frustrating and it's so cool and it's so exciting and it's so hotly debated because it's going to be a long time before we know what to do with all that. But the one thing, you know, my my father in law is a great example, you know, for Christmas a few years ago, we got genetic testing for everyone in our family right? So it was for my wife and I and our kids, and our parents. And my father-in-law was just like, hey, this is super cool. I'm going to do it. You can look at mine. I don't really want to see it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> sure. And, and I was like, oh, you know, just can you help me explain why? And he's like, look, I'm, I'm, I'm getting older. Most of my life's behind me. But I don't really want to worry about a bunch of things that are either inevitable or um, I'm at the end of my life anyway. So I just don't need to worry about it. I was like, that's totally cool. I respect that. Good. I'm going to look at yours, but I won't tell you what's in it. You know what I mean? 
And actually, he was part of the experiment here in our genetics book, because what we did was, you know, one thing that um, sounds weird and like all X-many is the fact that mutation happens when offsprings are of, of you know, genetic parents are born, right? So not like uh, Wolverine necessarily mutations, but mutations that are just different than your two parents. Like you can look at your parents' blueprint, your mom's and your dad's maybe, and you say, well, I should have all the same pairings as them, except for there's a small percent that are totally novel that you didn't get from either parent, right? And those are just mutations because genes are just copied, right? And then made into you. So what we did was looked at my wife's parents, my wife and I, and our children. So we had, and, and my wife's sisters, and we had three generations of genes being passed down. And it was cool to actually track the biological mutation rate across three generations to see, oh, there's stuff that my kids have that don't trace back to their grandparents or to us that are just a natural product of reproducing. And wow. that's how species evolves in some cases. You know what I mean? So that this stuff is fascinating and awesome, but it still doesn't tell us whether we need 30% or 40% protein in our diet. And it may never, <laughs> right. you know? Right. And, you know, there's so many companies out there, DNA Fit, 23andMe, some British, I think it was either a British or Australian doctor reached out to me, wanted to come on the show. And I looked at his website and he sells like a, a DNA testing kit. I'm like, oh no, man, you know, I, I'll have to really get into your stuff before I have someone on talking about, otherwise I would just have someone like you come on and, and mediate the debate. You know, <laughs> that's what I would do. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't just like, oh, wow, it's so great, everybody. Go out and buy the DNA kit. Uh, but I'm curious, right. though, who would you recommend this for? And, and what types of stuff could we figure out that yeah. may be applicable or, or actionable? Yeah, that's, that's the best question here. I appreciate you asking it. You know, you know I think uh, there's the, the first group and the most important group that this is for is people who just got to know. I mean, that's, that's the number one customer outside of, I mean, when you, when you, we actually detail this and have charts on this in the book, the number one reason for doing genetic testing is paternity cases, right? Who's the daddy? You know what I mean? (laughs) So that's, that's the number one use of genetic testing today. The second is for very particular genetically heritable traits, right? So there are certain diseases that are a hundred percent passed on and if the parents are carriers of it you know then the child will have it right so what they'll do is they'll do testing on a pregnant mother and then give the parents the opportunity to choose to have the baby or not if they know that baby's going to have a particular condition these are the top two things okay but those aren't these commercially available services those are tests done through medical providers whatever for what we're talking about here, you know, the 23s and me's, the DNA fits, the athletogens, all, all the ones that we looked at in our, in our book, their number one customer is not someone who's concerned about a, a medical condition. They're just enthusiasts mm. who want to know everything about themselves, right? I, I mean, I, like I, I told you, I bought five kits just to try and trick the company into thinking I was five different people. 
I've done a lot of genetic testing in my life outside of the course of this book. Why? Because I think it's interesting. Even, you know, I even found it fascinating when I spit in a little tube, sent it away, and they told me that I have blue eyes and I'm lactose intolerant. Now, these are things I already knew about myself. This didn't change my life knowing this, right? But the idea that I could just give you some saliva and you could tell me about myself in that way is very interesting. Mm. You know what I mean? Uh, and if I can look at my kids and say, oh, hey, our oldest daughter uh, takes after me in this way. Or I can look back to my genetic heritage and say, oh, I'm like 2% Neanderthal DNA. So is that true? Yeah, 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 I am. Actually, Krista Scott Dixon, who you mentioned earlier, is like super Neanderthal. She has like the highest percentage of any of the people we tested wow. on Neanderthal DNA, um, <laughs> yeah, like above the norm, you know? So, um, so that, that, I mean, these are just interesting things. And so the number one person that this is for is someone who just loves health and fitness, wants to know more about themselves doesn't really care how much of it is actionable, would just have a hell of a time, you know, looking through their genetic reports and exploring, playing, going, hey, is this even true? Oh, this one's not true. That's weird. But these other five things are true. So that kind of stuff, you know, people who read articles uh, on topics that are not related to their career or any of their personal hobbies, just because they're interested in health and fitness. That's the number one type of person. You know, people who want maybe some clues about themselves and consider their health and their fitness and their lifestyle a puzzle, you know, and they're like, hey, I think I know some things about myself, but maybe I can get more insight if I do this. And you might get a little bit more insight. That's what this is good for nowadays. And that's where most of the money is made off that type of consumer. Unfortunately, sometimes the promises exceed the capacity here, right? So, there are companies that are saying, like, we will give you a full report on how to eat, exercise, sleep, and whatever. And our data are really good, science-based, whatever. And that's uh, th those are the ones I have trouble with because, you know, you've been in this field long enough, Ted, to know that the weakest kind of study is correlational studies, right? So these sort of cohort-based models where you're not doing a a scientific manipulation, but you're just looking at a group and saying, oh, uh, you guys, like one I, I saw recently and I put in one of our recent animated videos, there's this one study that showed there was like a correlation between organic food sales and autism, right? <laughs> so they're like, hey, the more organic food is bought in a particular town, the more there autism there is, right? And so how do you arrive at that? Well, not through an experiment. You just look at a town. You look at all these variables, how much organic food is bought, how much gasoline they use, you know, uh, what the temperature is, what diseases they have, and you look for relationships, right? So this one, they found that, right? So that's how genetic tests are actually, the, the genetic data has been arrived at. Very little of it is experimental. What they've done is they just said, hey, we, we had a thousand people 2% of them had colon cancer. When we looked at the distribution of genes, it looks like the people who got colon cancer have a higher rate of this gene combination versus this other one, right? Mm. And we don't, we don't know if that gene combination causes the cancer or if that gene com combination causes something else that causes the cancer 
or if there's really no good relationship, there's no cause at all. Kind of like, you know, the old example I often give, you know, it's really interesting that every time someone puts up an umbrella, it's raining. Right, right. So, you know, is putting up an umbrella causing the rain or do people just put up umbrellas when it's raining and that's why the relationship exists? So this is the kind of thing that genetic studies are really, really bad at proving there's any cause, right? So if you see colon cancer risk is higher, first of all, you have to interpret what that means. Like, is it really a risk for you? Or is it like normally one in a billion people get it? Now your chance is 1.1 in a billion. Like now you're going to change your life. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because that that, that 1.1 is a 10% risk. Do they tell you the increased risk uh, compared to the population? They do, yes. Yeah, 23andMe does as an example. Some other services do. Others don't. They're super vague about it. They just say, you have increased risk for this, risk for this, so you might consider these interventions, right? So they're trying to make it more palatable to people who don't understand like population statistics, you know, which is a, it's a noble effort, right? Yeah. But again, like if you don't know how to categorize it, because like, you know, let's, let me, let's use that example again. If I had a 50% increase in colon cancer risk, that would sound scary unless I knew that one out of a billion people gets it. And my risk is now only 1.5 out of a billion. Right. Right. 50% sounds huge. Like, all right, I guess I'll get my will together. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But when you look, it's only 1.5 versus one out of a billion. You're like, oh, well, I'm not dying from colon cancer anytime soon. Right. So you have to understand that what the data mean, which is hard. Like most people aren't trained statisticians. Um, and then you have to understand, is there anything you can do with that? And then tracing back. Did the study even, was it even designed in a way that makes it predictive or is it just correlations? You know, so that these are some of the weaknesses, you know, and again, if someone were to pin me down and say, should people do genetic testing or not? I don't have an answer because if you're curious about yourself and you love learning about stuff like this, then I'd say do it. It's like 99 bucks. You know what I mean? You probably waste money on way stupider things than this. (laughs) Will this, you know, allow you to make, uh, perfect lifestyle choices on the domains we talked about earlier, eating, moving, alcohol, tobacco, sleep, stress, relationships. No, it probably will make very little difference to your choices around that, but that doesn't make it worthless either. I'm glad you brought up the point about what it really means with when someone says, oh, we discovered the gene for breast cancer or for colon cancer and how it's the observational studies a lot of times. They weren't looking at specific genes per se. You have to actually look into the research, but that's how it's presented in the media. That's mm-hmm. how it's presented by, by quote-unquote experts who are looking to profit on this type of testing. And uh, my, one of my favorite scientists, Robert Sapolsky, who uh, mm-hmm. I'm sure you're very familiar with, he has oh, yeah. this. He's, he's one of my heroes for sure. Oh man, he's such a, a just a brilliant thinker and so outside the box. And he has this free Stanford course, Intro to Human Biology, which is pretty dense. Don't recommend it unless you're really interested in, <laughs> in uh, this subject. But he talks about. He's like, listen, you can only do a study on a gene in a particular environment. And that result that you get only tells you the interaction 
for that gene in that environment, not for mm-hmm. how the gene behaves in any other environment. Mm-hmm. And That's it's right. just a, an important point to recognize when we're hearing about what genetic tests uh, tell us and, and the people in the media trying to make it sound super sexy when they found the gene for whatever disease. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, one, you're exactly right. And, you know, part of that is science is hard, man. Yeah, it's hard. It really is. Statistics and science are hard to do. They're hard to interpret. That's why not all scientists agree, even on the meaningfulness of a particular study, right? So then to expect a, a group of journalists who oftentimes are not trained scientists to be able to interpret this stuff, it's a very difficult job they have. Um, so and to make the title sexy enough for people to actually click yeah, on the to article, get a lot of eyeballs. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So it, it's it's a tough situation. You can totally understand how it happens, and you know, as a listener, as a consumer. You just have to know that these things are realities. You don't have to be mad at them. You don't have to accept them even, but you just have to know this is what happens. Research is done to the best of the research's ability based on the tools they have and the financing they have. It's not always great, but it's better than knowing nothing and believing in the mud god. You know what I mean? <laughs> so that's part one. And part two is it's really hard to interpret what they discover not all scientists will even agree on the same piece of measured objective data. And then to actually report it out to you in a way you could probably maybe understand it, because you're certainly not going to understand reading the original source text about this, the published study. You have journalists who aren't necessarily trained and then editors who are dis- you know writing titles to get eyeballs. So this is how it is. As a consumer, you just have to know that. And then you have to weigh your impression of these things accordingly. Yeah, well stated. And uh, I'm doing my best to be like that journalist, to have people like you on, because I'm certainly not doing the science, John. <laughs> but uh, I, I'm curious, did you do any, did anybody's test turn up with short sleeper genes? And do they actually sleep like only five hours or four hours? Yeah, we didn't actually get, we didn't actually do much about sleep. You know, I I feel like, you know, our our main chapters where we looked at, you know, particular things that are practical are like chapters five through 11, which five is heredity, six is metabolism, seven is body comp and body weight, eight is food preference, nine is food intolerance. We looked at nutrient absorption in chapter 10 and then exercise and muscle performance. So our main thrust in this particular book was exercise and food related stuff. And so we didn't really dig into sleep or stress all that much. Had we have, this might've been 600 pages. Um, <laughs> right. You know, so, you know, there, and the truth is, you know, I think the sleep stuff is a bit more limited. There's some good stress stuff. I mean, if you look at, you know, Robert Sapolsky's work, he's sort of the seminal guy who disseminates stuff around stress. I, you know, well, well, you might not recommend his course for the layperson. His books, like zebra, why zebras um, don't get ulcers, and uh, what's the uh, the book about um, his observations of uh, chimpanzees and gorillas, and uh, it's like a series of short stories. You know, the one yeah, the testosterone. I have the book here. I can't remember the name, but I got it simply yeah, like because the problem with the or, problem with testosterone yeah, or something like that. Yeah. It. 
Yeah, and those are excellent and I think accessible. I've recommended them to a lot of nine scientists and they've loved them, you know. For people who have been exposed to Oliver Sacks' uh, work, uh, he's the guy who wrote that movie Awakenings that Robin Williams starred in, and it might be the 80s or the 90s. And he, he deals with a lot of like I, what might have been called at the time like abnormal psychology. And if he just writes these great short stories and anecdotes. Uh, th that's what I think about Sapolsky. I think these guys are kind of cut from the same cloth in terms of bringing science, their particular domains, into you know, public discussion in these like super great storytelling and compelling ways. Yeah. I'm not familiar with Oliver Sacks, although I do remember that, uh, that movie that you're talking about. Uh, uh, definitely check out some of his books. If you like Sapolsky, you'll love Sacks' stuff. Is there one in particular that you would recommend? Um, I forget the, t see, I'm blanking on all these book titles today, but just find his stuff on Amazon. He's got a couple uh, books of short stories on they're, they're just like psychology uh, case studies if you will that he turns into stories like really compelling stories and see which ones might be interesting to you but um, yeah yeah just hit Amazon and you'll you'll find a few cool yeah well John th this has been incredible and I don't want to give too much away I mean you should if you're interested go get the genetics book, you don't even have to download it. You said it was available online as well. Yeah, yeah. If you just um, go to precisionnutrition.com backslash genetic dash testing dash ebook, or you can just Google it, precision nutrition genetic testing book. Um, yeah, it's just all online. I mean, there's a table of contents online. You can read all the chapters online. You can read them on a mobile device, or you can download a free PDF of them. Uh, of the whole book and 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 check it out. But I think anyone interested in genetics, even if you don't want to read the whole thing, you can jump around. You can be like, oh, I'm really curious about food preferences or metabolism or exercise and muscle performance. We talk about genes related to strength and power performance versus endurance performance and some other things, even um, discussions of possible genetic predispositions to injury, tendon mm. injury and stuff like that. You know, so that that's pretty fascinating. I have some friends who work in the space and they're actually coming up with a genetic screen for soft tissue injury. And so, so some cool stuff. Wow, that is cool. And I can't wait to get to those sections. I got pulled away to work on some of our other projects that I told you mm -hmm. were going on. But it's a beautifully illustrated book as well. It's very easy to read uh, with, with the exception of the codon and the the stop code on and the, the first part, it tells you a, an explanation of how the science or how molecular biology works. But past that, it starts to get super interesting. And, uh, and, and it's all interesting, John. I shouldn't say that, but just gives me nightmares no, I, of my, I, yeah. my molecular biology class. Like, oh my gosh, this is no, complicated. I, I agree. You know, for, for people who don't necessarily want to understand like the three-dimensional structures of protein and the intricacies of, I don't know, like this section, one of the sections that I find is fascinating is uh, the section on like the inheritance from your parents of X and Y chromosomes, right? We actually dug into the research on that and even the notion because people think that gender is kind of a binary thing you either are like have the you know the the girl combination or the boy combination there's people who have like xxy there's people who have the the boy chromosomal combination but because of a androgen receptor 
uh, difference, they actually develop female sex organs and body characteristics. So we just, and this, this isn't uh, to be a political book or, or anything like that, but it's just fascinating to look at how your genes can have little hiccups in their processing and distribution and, and uh, passing on to offspring to the point where even things we thought were simple, like you get an X and a Y and you're good, um, aren't, you know? And so, but if you're not interested in some of those things, you just skip it and go to the metabolism section, you know? Yeah. You're like, oh, I, I have the FTO gene, that polymorphism That's of right. that FTO gene. That's why, uh, you know, I'm just going to keep eating cookies and ice cream and potato chips, you know? Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, and the other thing I think people can get out of it is even if you skim the how genes work section, you should get a deeper respect for how complex this is. And hopefully that inoculates you from future oversimplification <laughs> because it happens all the time, right? You read a thousand word article on genetics and you're like, oh, I got it. And that person convinced me, oh, it's this, you know, and it's like, well, you don't even have to understand anything we wrote in chapters two and three. All you have to see is how freaking complicated it is. That person who tried to make it really simple and straightforward and, okay, so you should believe this or buy this. Yeah, don't believe the hype, you know? Yeah, don't believe the hype. Absolutely. Well, John, man, it's been an amazing conversation, like always. And thank you so much for coming on here, talking about both these important subjects, how our behavior, how we can get a hold on our stress, how we can start to get at the root problem, and then getting into the genetics, the science of genetics, not just educating us, but also, like you just said, inoculating us to oversimplification, especially when it's designed to separate our money from our <laughs> bank account. So really That's appreciate right. you, man. Appreciate what you do. And uh, I can't wait for the next time. Oh, thanks, Ted. I really appreciate that. It's been a great conversation. I've enjoyed both the ones we've had. I hope listeners, I'm just looking at the clock here for the first time. We've been at it for nearly two hours. I don't know if people actually listen to podcasts for two hours, but if you are still here, you're amazing. Thank you for hanging with us the whole time. I hope you got something out of it. And hey, come visit us if you want to dig into some of these things a little bit more at Precision Nutrition. Absolutely. And uh, I'll have the link to everything on the show notes. And John, not to worry, people do listen to two hours sometimes, but I'll have this broken up into two different ones so people can listen to the behavior change one, the stress one, and then the genetics separately. Awesome. Sounds great. Welcome to Ted's Takeaways. This is the part of the interview where I talk about the biggest lessons that I feel the guest went over in interview for today. And all I've got to say is this, are you someone who needs to know about your genes and about what there is to know, even though the science about genetics and diet recommendations is not quite where it needs to be to be as actionable as we'd like. I'm kind of on that side of things and I will be doing a DNA test and I will let you know the results when I get it, when I get around to doing it. I've got a lot on my plate right now. But if you're that hobbyist person, then fine. It's definitely for you because you're like me. You got you to gotta geek out on all this stuff. 
But if you've been feeling like, hey, maybe I should do a genetics test, maybe that's the missing link that will help me lose more fat or build more muscle or turn around my health. Unfortunately, it just ain't there. The science just ain't there. And I don't want you to fall prey to any company who is selling you that type of kit and and saying, hey, we can tell you exactly what to eat to reverse heart disease or to ward off whatever issues you might get that we found in your genes, whatever genetic predispositions that we found, we can help you avoid them because it just ain't true. So keep that in mind. And if you enjoyed today's episode and you learned a lot, which I hope you did, make sure you share this. Sharing is caring and it's the highest compliment you can pay to me. Share it wherever you hang out online, whether that's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and If you're new to this podcast, make sure you click that subscribe button. Whether you're in the Android store, whether you're on iTunes, there's always a place where you can go and subscribe. That way, you'll get every episode as soon as we publish it. Typically, we only publish one episode per a week on Monday, and it goes live at 1 a.m. Monday morning. That's right, 1 a.m. in the morning. So if you're in a different time zone. You'll get it right as soon as it goes live in the middle of the night for me, but you'll get it. So make sure you click that subscribe button. Last thing I want to say is you can find everything, all the resources and all the other goodies that we mentioned, like the genetics ebook in the show notes for this episode. Just go to legendarylightpodcast.com and it will be right there waiting for you. Have an amazing week and I'll speak to you next time.